Last Lord's Day morning, we used our time to consider the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth, specifically as it pertains to the book of 1 Corinthians. And we noted that 1 Corinthians itself, its very existence, the fact that we have a copy of it, is a testimony of God's heart to us, that God would have us to have His Word. 1 Corinthians, we said, is a fruit of the will of God for sinners. Or we could just say, 1 Corinthians is the will of God for us. And especially as providence would have it, here we come as a church together to spend what will potentially be years in this epistle. I I hope that it's safe to assume that it is the will of God for us as a congregation to begin to study this epistle together and to learn from it. In the evening service, we learned that Corinth was a place full of such sinners. The heart of God in heaven is toward sinners on earth. Corinth was a place full of sinners. And God's heart was seen historically in the fact that He sent the gospel to that city. And in that city, full of sinners, He, uh, he told the Apostle Paul, I have many in this city. He sent the gospel to him to call out his from that city and to, to gather him to himself. Now we're going to begin to study the letter proper, but we're not going to leave those themes behind us. Paul, from the very outset, builds upon these ideas. He, he's laying the groundwork for everything that he's going to say in the epistle. The, these themes of God's heart or God's will. What is God's heart for the church? What's God's will for the church in Corinth? As I, I mentioned last Lord's Day evening, the theology of the cross is a major emphasis in this epistle. And he doesn't uh, wait until late, later on in the epistle to pick that up. He lays it out here in, in the opening salutation. He begins even here to summon all of the value systems of the world and and force them to be measured according to the standard of the cross of Christ. Even in the salutation. We can miss it when we read through these things very quickly and we don't stop to think of how these things ought to be considered in a, in a broadly biblical context and even historically as he's dealing with this church. But that's what he's doing. From the very outset, he's bringing the Corinthians and their worldview before the cross. And he's saying, measure yourself by this standard, and, and really here, because he, he says of himself, this is the standard by which I measure myself. So this morning we're just going to look at verse 1, which reads, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. I'm going to open this verse up under four headings. Number one, the author of the letter. Number two, the authority of the letter. Number three, the aim of the letter. And then fourthly, the amanuensis of the letter. Now let that be a little bit of a carrot dangling in front of your face. If we can st- and hang in there together, when we get to point number four, we'll get to learn what an amanuensis is. My, my, what I want to do is, hopefully this will be an encouragement. I want to encourage us as a congregation from the outset of this letter. So, so think of it that way. First, the author of the letter. The first, ver- first word of the first verse is the name of the author, Paul. Though the name Paul, or we typically refer to him as the Apostle Paul, that, that is a common name, a common uh, figure to us as Christians. And though his writings form the substance of the New Testament teaching that we know as clear, Christ-centered, sovereign grace theology, a lot of times we forget that Paul's theology flows out of his own experience. And that's what I want to begin with this morning is just a brief biographical sketch of the man Paul. The story of the Apostle Paul is unquestionably a story of God's unrelenting grace toward a sinner. And how God deals with sinners. And this is right out of the gate. He's paving, uh, laying, laying the groundwork or paving the way for the theology of this epistle. As to his early life and education, and this won't be uh, canonically in order, but I want to sort of build a, a biography of the Apostle Paul from a bunch of different places in Scripture. And again, this is brief. 
As to his early life and education, we learn in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, from his own mouth, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So we find out that Paul was born in a city called Tarsus in a region of the world called Cilicia. And in Acts chapter 21, he refers to this city as no obscure city. So this was not a city that nobody had ever heard of. This wouldn't be like when we say, I'm from Taylorsville, and people kind of cock their head sideways, and you say it's near Hickory, or, or it's 30 minutes from Statesville. This wasn't like that. People knew where Tarsus of Cilicia was. It wasn't an obscure city. It's in modern-day Turkey. That's where he was born. But he says, I was brought up in this city. He was, he's in Jerusalem as he's speaking. And he was educated at the feet of or by a man named Gamaliel, who was one of, if not the chief of the instructors, the teachers of the Pharisees. When he was asked in Acts chapter 22, Are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. It was a big deal to be a Roman citizen in this time period. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So he is a natural born Roman citizen. In Philippians 3, 5, he says of himself that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. So... This is building a picture of this man who wrote the epistle that we know as 1 Corinthians. He is a Jew. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, a Benjaminite. And he's a Roman citizen by birth. He was raised in Jerusalem, brought up under the tutelage of a very honorable teacher, and was himself a Pharisee. Now what? just think about what we know about the Pharisees from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This man Paul fit into that grouping. The Pharisees. Usually when we think of the Pharisees, we don't think of men who were friendly to the gospel or friendly to Christ. That's this man, the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. The first time that we meet Paul in the book of Acts is at the stoning of a man named Stephen. In Acts 7.58 it says, "...the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul." Saul was his Jewish name. Paul would be his Greek or Roman name. In Acts 8.1, it says that Saul approved of his execution. In verse 3 of Acts chapter 8, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul wasn't just a Pharisee. He was so strict and so devout as a Pharisee that he personally took part in the persecution of Christians. Now, you'll very often hear people say, well, Paul murdered Christians. Well, I, I don't know that there's a reference to Paul himself actually physically murdering anyone, but he definitely took part in having them imprisoned, and he definitely, it says, he approved of the fact that they stoned Stephen. As they were stoning Stephen, Paul sat back and thought, this is the right thing to do to this man. And, and really, he would probably say, to all of those who hold to this sect, who follow what was known as the way, Paul would have said they all deserve the same punishment. They deserve death. This is the kind of man this was. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 9. This is a longer section. And I want to read what is probably the most well-known event in the life of the Apostle Paul, which is his conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul's not just waiting for Christians to pop up somewhere. He's after them. Can, will you commission me to go find these people and bring them here? Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So what we find out is this man, this Pharisee, on his way to drag Christians to prison, is confronted by the risen Lord Jesus Himself on His way to persecute Christians. He's, he's stopped there. After those three days of blindness, He regains His sight. He's baptized in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. It says that He immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. That was the great quarrel between the Jews and Christ Himself, the Christians. Is this really the Son of God? The Christians said yes. The Jews said no. This can't be the one that we've been waiting for. Paul immediately begins to preach and his message is very simple. He is the Son of God. He is who He said He was. Now in Galatians chapter 1, again I'll just quote these, writing to the churches of Galatia, he says, "...the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel." For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't get the gospel like we get the gospel. Now what does he mean he received it through revelation of Jesus Christ? He goes on to say in Galatians, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. So we learned that Paul, after his conversion, spent a a decent amount of time in Arabia. Well, we we want want to know what was he doing in Arabia? What happened there? And, And most, I think, would take Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12 to be a description of what happened when he was in Arabia. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In other words, it seems that Paul was taken up in visions and was given a gospel tutelage at the feet of Jesus Christ Himself. So Paul's conversion and his discipleship were both carried out personally by the risen Christ. It was Jesus Christ who stopped him on the road to Damascus. It was Jesus Christ who discipled him by means of these heavenly visions or visitations. Then we come to Acts chapter 13. We find that Paul is serving in the church in Antioch, Acts 13.1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So that was his home church, the church in Antioch. And it was by this church that Paul is first officially commissioned and sent off to preach. And I think it's it's useful to take note that though he did begin to preach immediately... He didn't go off on on a formal missionary venture until the church had determined that he should be sent off and and Barnabas with him. Acts 13, 2-4 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and he he proceeds to go on his first missionary journey, sent out from the church in Antioch. Now this is brief. This brings us up to his, his missionary endeavors. But to summarize, this man Paul was a Jew. From the Old Testament, we would say an Israelite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. We've been studying 1 Samuel. Saul, King Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem, a student of Gamaliel, a Pharisee so devout 
that he took the initiative to, to try to be commissioned to be sent out to drag Christians to Jerusalem. But then, he's stopped by the risen Lord Jesus. His conversion and his discipleship are both carried out personally by the risen Christ. He becomes a faithful member and leader in the church at Antioch. And he's commissioned and sent off to preach by that same church. Now, if we, if we just read the story, and I think we, we've all heard these things before, there's no way that we can read through just a brief survey of the life of the Apostle Paul and his conversion without being amazed at, at the, the clear, astonishing intervention of God. God intervened into what Paul was doing and changed it all to use Paul for what God would have him to do. God, in the person of the risen Christ, broke in upon the life of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was heading one way. The Lord stopped him and rerouted him. Paul goes from afflicting the saints to eventually himself being afflicted. He, he doesn't even get out of Damascus without sneaking out through the wall. Immediately, he's under this affliction and persecution. He went from being a Pharisee to being chased and hated by the Pharisees. He went from guarding the jackets of those who stoned Stephen to himself being stoned for the very same gospel. It's a powerful testimony to God's intruding grace in Christ. Now, if we were to stop there and say, well, what does this have for us? Often, we might be tempted to think, well, it really doesn't have much of a, a a relationship to us other than we can point outside of ourselves and say, wow, what a testimony, what an amazing story of what God done with that man. Brothers and sisters, though we admit that we've not seen a light from heaven, we don't have the, the same visible, heavenly phenomena that the Apostle Paul experienced in his conversion, if you've been born again, you are the subject of the very same kind of the inbreaking of God in your life. The same thing. Not, not, not in the exact same form, but the same idea. God, God was no more active in Paul's conversion than in your conversion. You were not born a, a little a little more on the pathway to heaven than Paul was. You were not born less a son or daughter of Adam than Paul was. If you're saved, it's because God did this in some form for you. Some of you were converted in riper years, and so you can clearly remember your hellward sprint. You can remember what you were and you can remember a specific season of God bringing you to Himself in a very powerful way. Others of you raised in godly homes like Timothy taught the sacred writings from childhood by your parents. You might not have the same kind of, of, of experience to recollect in your conversion. Not everybody is swallowed by a fish or blinded by light. But everybody who's saved is the, is the object of the sovereign intervention of God. This is what God does. This is the only way that a sinner can be saved is as if God comes and stops them in their pathway, in the direction that they are headed by nature, and reroutes them, changes them. Now how might we use that? If we understand that, if we get a grip on that, how might we use it? Well, twice in the book of Acts, we see Paul retelling the story of his conversion. He tells, it, he tells it again. And we might be tempted to think, well, if I had a, such a story like that, it would be worth retelling. If I was blinded by a light, I would love to tell everybody that story, but I don't have that story. So, so then perhaps my, my, my testimony of salvation is not quite as, as uh, captivating as the Apostle Paul's. But again, if you've been saved, you've got a testimony to God's sovereign grace no less powerful than the Apostle Paul's. We'll see in a minute. Paul attributes his conversion to God's foreordination and grace. And Paul uses his salvation to bear witness 
to God's saving power. It's not until the end of 2 Corinthians, and afterwards Paul has to say, I'm speaking like a madman. It's not even until that point that he actually begins to bring up this idea of these great visions that he was having. He didn't want to boast in these things. A lot of times we think if we don't have something big and, and experiential and, and full of phenomenon, then we really don't have anything to boast in. We don't really have a, a testimony of God's grace in our lives. That's not true. As Christians, we should all be willing, whether privately or in conversation with others, very often to rehash and recount the work of God's grace in us. Now, sharing your testimony is not the same thing as sharing the gospel. We have to keep that clear but that doesn't mean that we can't say, you know what, I'm an object of this sovereign grace that I'm preaching to you. We shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed to speak of where we were and where we are now. If you were saved at a young age, and now you're older, you can testify to years of God's faithfulness. That other Christians who may have been saved later in life and they might have a, a, a very powerful testimony of how, how wicked and, and openly vile they were and God immediately and radically changed them, but they can't testify to decades of God's faithfulness like you can. You can testify to that. I was saved early and God has kept me year after year after year after year. You can testify to that. You can testify to your own battles with indwelling sin. So that you might have to say, well, I don't remember, I, I, I wasn't doing drugs and living a, a, a profligate lifestyle. But even as a regenerate, regenerate person, as I've aged, I've felt the temptations and the, 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 the uprisings of indwelling sin. And I've had to war with that even as a, a saved person. And God has been faithful. You can testify to your proneness to wonder, you can say, I was, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I still have this, this proneness in my mind to wonder. Even after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, I sit through a sermon and I find myself, my, my mind wandering. But God has been faithful to me. You can testify to things that other people who were saved later in life have not yet experienced. If you were saved in later years, then you can testify to the mighty grip of sin, your own lusts, and how Christ came powerfully delivering you from bondage and things that were so entwined, intertwined into your, your personality that you thought, if Christ removes this from me, if this thing changes, I won't even exist as a person. I, my, my whole person would have to be altered because it's so ingrained in me. And yet, He came and He changed me and I'm not who I used to be. You can bear witness to that. Especially in our prayers our private prayers, we should be willing to regularly give thanks to God for our salvation, just as the Apostle Paul was. Give thanks to God for your salvation in prayer. Now, some of you hear that and you say, well, is that not just a given? Why do we even need to say that? Why do, why do I need to be told to give thanks to God for my salvation in my prayers? I guarantee, and you, you, you can bear witness to see if this is true or not, there are people in this room who are dear saints of God who don't struggle to go quick to prayer. They might, might not struggle to thank God for all of His kindnesses. They might even be champions of intercession. But when it comes to personally thanking God for the salvation of your own soul, your eyes flitter away from God to yourself. You're reminded of your sin. You're reminded of your corruption. Unbelief prevails and you stutter in offering a thanksgiving because you almost feel like it would be presumptive for me to say, I thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die for me. Oh, we're, we're, we'll champion, well, Christ died for the elect. And so when we get in our prayers, we say, well, thank you, Lord, for, for sending your Son to die for your people and thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you offer. But how often do you say thank you for saving me? Thank you for what you've done to me. And you might think the act of prayer itself is, is sufficient to assume the state of your soul. So I don't have to be specific about myself. This is about God. And, and if I turn in on myself, it, it won't really be prayer. Or maybe you think that might be overstepping the bounds of, of the decorum of prayer to be singularly specific 
in your case, again, I'm talking about private prayer, not public or corporate prayer, but you might think, well, I don't want to be too specific about myself. It's not wrong. It's right for us to be that way. If you're a Christian, you are the object of God's omnipotent saving power, just like the Apostle Paul, and you should not be ashamed to say that. You shouldn't be ashamed in prayer to say, thank you for coming after me. Thank you for breaking in upon my life. Thank you for rescuing me when I was dead in my very own trespasses, my very own sins. Dear Jesus, thank you for hanging and bleeding and dying for me. Our doctrine of salvation should never become so, so vague and systematic that it doesn't actually apply to individual people. It should be the opposite. Because we believe the atonement accomplished something, we believe that individual people were won by Christ's shed blood on the cross. If you're a Christian, you're one of those individual people. And you ought to be able to say it. Thank you for saving me. Your blood was for me. The forgiveness was for me. You've pardoned me. Say it to Him. Say it to other people. And champion that. You're not an apostle. But you're still a trophy of a victorious Christ. Our names are born on the heart and shoulders of our high priest in the presence of God. Right beside Paul's. No, no different. Listen to this from Psalm 107. Sort of a, a, a summation of this application. A, 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 an imperative, a command to the people of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. You can testify to that spiritually. And, you can say, and, and it, this is what happened. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. It doesn't say His wondrous works to the apostle, to the children of man. What has God done to all of His people, for all of His people? We've, we've, we've all come from a status in Adam of wandering in desert wastes, realizing whatever we might find out there cannot satisfy. And if you're a Christian, you called upon Him, He heard your cry, He saved you. Therefore, give thanks to the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The author of this epistle, when we read his story, we're captivated. It, it, it is a wonderful story. If you're a Christian, you've been saved by the same God. I think if the Apostle Paul were here, he would say, this is my story. Now let's, let's look away from me. And he would say, now what, what, would God, what has God done for you? He would apply that theology broadly to all the people of God. Second heading, we see the authority of the letter. The authority of the letter. Just as his conversion and discipleship were carried out under the initiative and sovereign prerogative of God, so Paul's apostleship was completely attributed to God's purposes for him. And this is where we see the authority of the letter. God's purposes for Paul. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. The fact that Paul was an apostle was by the will of God, not Paul. Paul is saying, it wasn't my will to be an apostle. My will was the opposite. It wasn't my will to be an apostle. It was God's will for me to be an apostle. In other words, from everlasting and ancient times, in eternity known only to God Himself, the self-existent three-in-one was pleased... From eternity, that this man, a Roman-born Jewish Pharisee, would be drafted into the ranks of the army of the risen and reigning Lamb to be his messenger, his preacher, his apostle. Specifically, the apostle to the Gentiles, like us. The apostle to the nations. 
Paul's credentials for apostleship are simply called by the will of God. That's all he needs to say. Notice he doesn't say Paul requested by the will of God. Paul was not given an option. You can be an apostle or you can be this or that. He was appointed to be an apostle. God's will prevailed over Paul's will, bringing him into submission so that Paul willed what God willed for him. Now we do see more specific requirements set out for those who were Christ's apostles in Acts chapter 1. Verses 21 and 22 it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when He was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to His resurrection. The point is the apostles were witnesses to the resurrection. That was their job, their, their chief, chief duty. Witnesses, especially to the living and resurrected Christ. So an apostle had to be one who was discipled by the living Christ and they had to see the living and resurrected Christ after His death and resurrection. Christ, unwilling to set aside these requirements, as we've seen, appeared to Paul after His ascension into glory. Paul, describing the resurrection of Christ, will say in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. He saw the resurrected Christ. Galatians, he says, He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. What can we say except that it was the will of God that Paul be an apostle, period. We don't have to say, well, it just happened providentially. It didn't. We don't have to say, well, well, Peter was an apostle and James just happened to be there, so James got drug along, or John was there and then Andrew was with him, so he was, he was brought in. We, we can't chalk any of this up to providence like that. We have to say it was purely and simply the will of God that Paul would be an apostle. In temporal terms, Paul would say, I was like one untimely born. I was born out of, out of, uh, out of the proper order. But in God's purposes, he could say, God set me apart before I was born. Again, God's heart in heaven for sinners on earth is revealed sort of in a microcosm of in the life of the Apostle Paul. God set Paul apart before he was born. He stopped him in his tracks on his way to hell. He saved him. He changed him. If Paul would have had it his way, he would be in torment this very hour. But God had his way. Paul didn't get his way. God had his way. And again, this is what God's done for all of us. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And in Romans 8, another well-known text, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, I, I trust these are... These are Beliefs so commonly held among us that we really don't talk about them that much. We, I, I joke that people think a church like ours gets together and just talks about election and predestination every week. And we know that that's not true. We go to the other extreme where we, we really don't talk about it at all. It's just sort of assumed. It's understood. We all recognize this. Let's not, let's not drift back into the cage stage. Let's just move on to, to bigger and better things. We shouldn't be embarrassed by these truths or, or simply leave them assumed. God set His affections on you. If you are a Christian, God set His affections upon you before you were born, from the foundation of the world. He didn't look down the halls of time and see that you would repent and say, well, I guess I see that they'll repent, therefore I will agree to save them. No, He understood that apart from His intervention, we would not repent. He set Himself... And His love upon us. That's what foreknew means. He loved us beforehand as Adam knew his wife Eve in, a, in a, a close, intimate, personal, covenant love and affection. God says, I did that for you from before the foundation of the world. A microcosm of what God has done for all of us. But there's also 
in the Apostle Paul the macrocosm, the big picture of God's plan of redemption. We know from Scripture God has always had a heart for the nations. From the very beginning, that was the plan, that the nations would be gathered in to worship God. And it pleased God to raise up this, this man, this singular individual, to be an apostle in order to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, that is the nations. Not, not that Paul was the only apostle or only man who ever preached to the Gentiles, but that was this man's individual duty. I've been set apart for this. Ananias said to Paul after his conversion in Acts 22, The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. For you will be a witness to Him, or for Him, to every one of what you've seen and heard. And Christ said to him in Acts twenty two twenty one, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In Acts 26, we learn that Christ said to Paul, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. If you can say, my eyes have been opened, I've been turned from darkness to light, I've been turned from the power of Satan to God, I've received the forgiveness of sins and a place among the sanctified through faith, you can say, I can, I can trace that back to the ministry of the Apostle Paul in some way. Paul would later write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. God's will was that Paul be an apostle. It was God's will that Paul be the apostle to the Gentiles. So then where does the authority of this epistle lie? Many would say it's found in Paul's apostleship, and that's why he mentions it. Yes, there is a sense in which Paul being an apostle gives authority and weight to his words, but I would argue that's not what Paul's getting at here. Why would I say that? Well, it was, it was actually one of the Corinthian problems that they would love to have had Paul come and lord his authority over them. He didn't do it. That's why they were offended by him. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 20 and 21, he says, For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. He's being ironic. We were too weak to lord our authority over you. That's, that's Paul's ministry philosophy. So he's not saying here, Paul, the apostle, listen to what I say. Paul, the apostle, you have to obey me. That's not what he's saying. He takes great pains in both Corinthian epistles to build out his authority, not based on this Gentile leadership structure of lordship and authority, but on a theology of the cross. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle, by or through the will of God. In the wording, he's utterly passive. Paul says, I'm under authority. I'm not championing my rule over you. I was called to this office. As we've seen, Paul's history is summed up like this. Here's what I was doing. Here's what I was. Here's where I was. But it was not God's will that I continue there. It was God's will that I be called into the ministry. So he, he called me. He stopped me. He changed me. He called me. He appointed me. He sent me. In other words, Paul sets the stage from the outset saying, I don't have authority in myself. I was called. I was appointed. I was commissioned by somebody else. The authority of this epistle is not found in Paul or even strictly his office but ultimately in God who called and appointed him. He was called by the will of God to be an apostle. And we see that more fully in point number three, which I've entitled The Aim 
of the letter. The aim of the letter. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul was called by God to be an apostle. That word means an official messenger. But not just any messenger, specifically an apostle or a messenger of Christ Jesus. Now there's a lot to be said here. I'll summarize it. The fact that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus implies that the supreme aim of this letter is to present the saints in Corinth with Christ Jesus. Because that is the supreme aim of the apostleship. That's why the apostles existed. was to present the world Christ. The apostles were of Christ were not simply or merely messengers. They didn't only deliver words. Rather, their entire life and ministry was to be a living, breathing illustration and presentation of the central features of the ministry of Christ Himself, primarily that of suffering for the sake of others. Apostles didn't just write letters. They went to people. They lived in front of them. Then later they write, we, we have these letters that come back. And, and Paul will say, remember my way of life. Remember how I was among you. Remember I was like a father. Remember I was like a mother. Remember night and day with tears, etc., etc." He says, look at the way I lived. That's what the, the central core of apostleship is not merely message. It's the whole picture. To be an apostle of Christ Jesus was to be a walking, talking billboard of a theology of suffering for the salvation and sanctification of others. The authority and aim of this epistle is not revealed in in the statement, I'm an apostle, do what I say. Rather, the authority and aim of this epistle is revealed in this statement. Look at me. Watch my manner of life. Watch me suffer for your sake. Now take up your cross, and inasmuch as I am following Christ, you imitate me. That's that's what it means to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now let me prove that. He says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Christ, as we know, refers to the Messiahship of Jesus. Christ is the Greek term for Messiah, meaning anointed one. The Christ, according to Jewish prophecy, would be the final premier prophet, priest, and king of the people. That's what they expected. For Paul to say an apostle of Christ Jesus is to say, I'm an apostle of the Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth. It's a confession. It's saying Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ. To us, that's not strange. We have to actually talk with people and explain to them that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Because that, that phrase, Jesus Christ, is so common in our culture, it's not strange to us to hear Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. But to the Jews, this was the chief stumbling block of their faith. They could not reckon with Jesus of Nazareth being their Messiah. Why? Because He was poor and lowly. He ate and drank with tax collectors. He received sinners. He was a man well acquainted with suffering and sorrow, eventually crucified by the Romans. In his final hours there on the cross, he was the object of mockery and scorn and scoffing by the Jews. That can't be our Messiah. That's the stumbling block. They stumbled over the stumbling block, Christ. Now, no less ridiculous would this have been in the Greco-Roman world. Greco-Roman Corinth, remember the city of of constant social climbing. Basically another Babel was Corinth. A city of man being built. And then here comes the story of Jesus. The Son of the only living and true God who came down from heaven, took on flesh, and humbled Himself to the most ignominious death the world knew. And then Paul comes and says, I am an apostle of the Messiah who is Jesus. The, the, the Christ who is Jesus of Nazareth. He writes to a church, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, primarily Gentiles. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
I'm an official representative messenger of the man whose entire life the Jews stumble at and the Greeks scoff at. I'm here to represent him. I'm here to represent his ways. I'm here to represent his message. Paul, the apostles themselves, and Paul in particular, was, was bringing the whole package of a presentation of Christ before the people. To claim to be an apostle of Christ was to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the details and the application of the humiliation, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, that's the message I come to proclaim. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. The good news concerning Him as the only way of salvation. To claim to be an apostle of Christ Jesus was to be one who embodied the ministry philosophy of the man Jesus. Now, as I said, there are some who would read these words, and when he says an apostle of Christ Jesus, they would say, well, here he's, he's imposing his authority, his office over them. But when we take the time to consider the biblical witness on this issue, especially as it confronts the typical thinking of men, it's actually the opposite. Now, we could start back with Christ Himself when He spoke to His apostles in Matthew 20. And He said in verses 25 to 28, Jesus called them to Him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. See, Christ established the leadership pattern of His kingdom after Himself, His own pattern. Lay down your life. That's how we rule. That's how we lead. That's how we give instruction. We lay down our life. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We see the, the Apostle Paul imbibe this exact ministry strategy for himself. And, and other, the other men who were with him, the other uh, potentially apostles or other preachers who were with him, uh, one, one commentator refers to Paul and his staff, the people who were with him as he traveled and preached. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Notice, notice the, the tenses of these, these nouns. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see how he switched there at the end. Basic reading comprehension skill, us is not you. You is not us when and he's writing in these epistles. When, when these things are together, he's drawing a contrast. Here's our position, and here's how what we're doing serves you. Now, yes, there is a sense in which every Christian is called to take up his or her cross, to deny themselves daily, and to follow Christ in this pathway. But if we take these passages, especially like those in 2 Corinthians, and we flatten them out as if they were simply a general statement regarding all Christians, not only does that destroy Paul's whole point in the epistle, and it abuses the words of the Holy Spirit, it eradicates the apostleship and the present Christian ministry of its real power. Paul's not saying in 2 Corinthians 4, for example, he's not saying, well, we're all going to have a rough go at it. That's not his point. We know the song that, that uses these lyrics, and it's been made to, to be about all of us in general. We're all just having a hard time. Well, look, historically, the broad majority of Christians, or, or, or many Christians, have not really had a hard go at it. Most of us, speaking comparatively, have not really had a hard go at it. So we either have to say, well, I guess we're not Christians, or maybe some have been called to a greater level of suffering and endurance. And I think that's what he's describing here. He's saying, 
Paul's saying, when Christ calls a man into his service, it is a call to bear in his body the life and death of Jesus in order to be a living illustration before the eyes of men of the sufferings of Christ so that they can see what it looks like to watch a man suffer. I'll read this from Colossians again and notice the parties. Colossians 1. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Again, my, and my is not your and your is not my. These are two different parties. He says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. Paul boasted in his sufferings. He rejoiced in his sufferings. Why? Because in his sufferings for the sake of the church, and this is true of all of the apostles, and even in some degree to all present ministers of the gospel, Paul knew as he suffered, he's filling up his ministry. He's not just talking about Christ and compelling men to follow Christ. He was a living illustration of what it looks like to suffer for the salvation of souls. Not to make an atonement for sins, but for their growth, for their sanctification, for their edifying, for their benefit. Our, this has been happening for generations, our, our equality culture has flattened out all of this, it's all but dissolved the concept of the biblical emphasis on the Christian ministry so that everybody's a preacher, everybody's a minister, everybody's this or that. There's no concept of this, this uh, a bifurcation in calling and roles. Paul was called to be an apostle. Other men now are called to be preachers. That's not everybody. And what Paul's saying is for me to be called to be an apostle of Christ was not just to preach the message about Him, but to live a life that, Im, that, that displayed the suffering concept before the eyes of men. Again, returning to what we saw last week concerning the Corinthian worldview, we learned that fixing our eyes upon this pattern of suffering set forth in Christ is what keeps us tethered to our true identity in Christ. This is where we see most fully the heart of God in heaven for sinners on earth, in Christ suffering for sinners. And when God calls a man into His service in this way, historically it would be called the gospel ministry. A man was called to the ministry or the gospel ministry. That, meant that man was, was set apart for something different than what everybody else was set apart for. And what that meant historically, beginning with the apostles, was this man's called to suffer for the sake of the people of God. We, we, we've, we've, in the past several years, we've talked about you know, the, the historical reality of the Black Road Regiment and, and, and pastors who would lead people into battle, preach, and then take off their robes and go, go to war. We don't have that anymore. We don't have respect for the gospel ministry like that anymore. Everybody's a preacher. Everybody's a minister. Well, that's just his opinion. That's his belief. Everybody is on the same level. We've flattened all of this out. And what Paul is, is setting forth for us is, I've been called to suffer, to show you a picture of a suffering man. That's an apostle of Christ. The aim of this epistle was to present the way of the cross. And Paul is an apostle of Christ. He's saying, I'm an apostle of the man of sorrows, and I'm not coming to lord over you. I'm not coming to say, well, I'm an apostle. Do what I say. He comes over and over and over again to say, I suffered this, I suffered this, I suffered this. And at the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, now examine yourselves. See whether you are of the faith. Are you believers? Then you can't doubt my ministry. As much as I suffered for your sake, it seems to have proved itself. That's what he's saying. An apostle of Christ Jesus. Now as Americans, and this is really everybody in general, but this, this seems to be our, 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 our founding worldview, uh, it's by nature more like the Corinthians than, than it was of Christ. We like the idea of victory and triumph as the world defines it. We, we champion that. We like men, even Christian men, who are good at building towers and making name for themselves. And we, we're always looking for somebody who's got some carnal attainment, some capital letters behind their name to follow. See what he's accomplished? See what he's done? Well, let's follow him. It's clear that he's doing A, B, C, D, and E. 
He's, he's manifesting some things, and that's what we like to follow. Very often in doing this, we turn our eyes away from what is the greatest triumph that's ever been accomplished in human history, which took place as Christ's blood is pouring out of His hands and His feet and His head and His side and His back. That's the greatest triumph. Well, we got to pick. What kind of triumph do we want? We're, we're so much more enthralled with Solomon's throne, with the lion, the ivory throne with the lions lining the stairs than we are of Christ crucified with, with scoffing and jeering around Him. But that's the victory. That's what it means to conquer in this kingdom. Now somebody might say, well, is Christ not now exalted in the heavens and seated on a throne that's fixed there? And the answer is yes. That he's actually established the pattern. Suffering precedes glory. When we have finished our race and endured to the end, we will be seated with Him. But how do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how the, the saints conquer. And there's, there's goodness of God in this. This is not a, a worse way. This is not a, a lesser pathway. Because as all of the saints that carry in, in themselves some kind of suffering, what it does is it purges us of the lusts of our flesh. Suffering involves our being crucified to the world and the world to us. Suffering and sorrow suck the world out of us. They pry our fingers off of this world and we go through things from time to time where we say, I'm tired of living on this planet. I'm ready to be somewhere else. This is not my home. God does that for us. It prepares us for glory, certainly. But living in the shadow of the cross also makes us more useful in the present life, especially in the places where most of us are going to serve as husbands, as wives, as parents, as church members. Places where we are required to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Areas where we are required to lay down our lives for other people. We have to learn to pour out ourselves for others. That's the pattern. So what is the aim of this letter? It's to accomplish that. It is to placard Christ before the eyes of all the saints and say, this is, this is how Christians live. This is how we find ourselves. Now fourthly, we have the amanuensis of the letter. Amanuensis is just a fancy word that starts with an A for somebody who transcribes the words of another. So we read in this verse, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosthenes. Probably more appropriately, Sosthenes, but I'm saying Sosthenes. I believe there's good reason to assume that this is the same man that was mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Acts 18.7 says, They all seized Sosthenes. Again, this is in Corinth. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. The Jews there in a, a fit of rage, they're really just pitching a fit. They just want to show they're upset. They just grab somebody. They grab Sosthenes and start beating him. And, and uh, Gallio says that, that, you know, you Jews are strange. This is on y'all. Y'all deal with things the way you want to deal with them. He washes his hands of it. But now it seems that this man, Sosthenes, has been converted and has made his way to Ephesus to be of assistance to Paul. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21, we read, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which implies the rest of the letter was not written by his own hand. It was written by an amanuensis, somebody who uh, wrote at his dictation, which was not uncommon. Most of the epistles were probably written that way. Sosthenes' name in this opening salutation implies that he is the one who put pen to paper that brings us 1 Corinthians. Paul dictates it. Sosthenes writes it. If this is indeed the same man, then it's not hard to imagine. It was probably the events of his being grabbed and beaten by the Jews that led to his conversion. He had seen Paul ministering and preaching for 18 months. Paul suffered for the gospel He's been beaten by the Jews in Acts 18.18. 18. We learn that after all this, Paul continued to preach for a little longer before he left. So it could very well have been Paul's own willingness to suffer and yet continue preaching for a time that was used by God to bring this man Sosthenes to himself and to recruit him into his service. Sosthenes, the amanuensis. Now several ways I think this is encouraging to us. First, we 
may be confident that our faithfulness in suffering will be a witness to those around us and maybe even be used to bring some to Christ. Other people, as they watch us suffer, not as they watch us triumph and victorious, we, we think of this way, that it will be this way. We'll draw them into Christ by this. Look, I'm a Christian and look, I have a blog. I'm a Christian, I have a TV show. Don't you want to be a Christian? That's not how it works. But the world might watch us suffer and see these people continuously endure and they are faithful in the face of all suffering. And, the, and God uses that to bring some to Himself. And therefore, we must not be caught complaining, especially around the lost, at suffering and trials and afflictions. We should be heard rejoicing, at, 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 at best rejoicing, and at worst, faithful and silent, to endure the Lord uses this to bring people to Himself. Secondly, we may be confident that we can be used for Christ's kingdom in our respective callings. Paul was called to be an apostle. Of Sosthenes, we just have literally the brother. Paul, an apostle. Sosthenes, the brother. Paul was an apostle. Sosthenes was not an apostle. And yet he was used by God to bring the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church in every generation. The very Word of God written, attributed to a pen in the hand of this man that we just know as the brother. The willingness of Sosthenes to serve in whatever capacity was needed of him is a reminder that we must simply be faithful wherever God has called us. We are tempted to say, Paul was an apostle, but I'm just a husband. I'm just a wife. I'm just a father. I'm just a mother. I, Paul was an apostle, but I'm just a child. Paul was an apostle, but I'm just in filling whatever your, your calling might be in life. Paul was an apostle. Sol Sosthenes was just the brother. We don't even know what he did for a living. But think about the, the eternal blessing of having the brother written by your name forever. Or the sister Paul says in Romans 8, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Co-heirs with Christ are all of the brothers and sisters in God's family. In Luke chapter 10, Christ said, Do not rejoice in this that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the chief, the, the chief rejoicing point for the saints. A comparative microscopic number will go down in history as apostles or prophets or even well-known and remembered men and women of God. Even of that microscopic few that we have biographies or autobiographies written and, and printed and reprinted and reprinted and they're, and they're read by many. Uh, even, even if we got everybody in this room, we said, raise your hand if you've read all of these biographies. Even in this room, we don't even know all of... We don't give our time to study these histories. We don't know them. They, 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 they drift across the page of history. A microscopic number. But we can all rejoice that our names are written in heaven, that we have Christ as our elder brother. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, champion, the, the champion cry of the, the saints. And knowing this, be faithful where God has called you. Don't say, well, I'm not an apostle, therefore what I do doesn't matter. No. Be faithful where God has called you. We know so little about Sosthenes that we have to speculate that this is the same man. And even still, because of his service, we have the very Word of God written. Sosthenes, the brother. And we should all be content with that kind of living. Ancestry.com exists because we can't even remember three and four generations of our own families. We come across the stage of history and we're gone. Come across and gone. I've got family members buried in this, in this county. I don't even know if you can walk to their, their cemetery. Covered, grown up with weeds. And I've often thought, what, what kind of life must it be to live and just be forgotten? But that's what we do. We, we, we are faithful in what God has called us and we must be content with the page of history folding over and people forgetting who we were. 
That's acceptable. That is an acceptable livelihood and living for the Christians. Many will rise up in the judgment and they will herald all of the great and mighty things that they did as they are being dragged to hell. And many will stand as faithful servants of God in their time. And maybe in the judgment, nobody knows their name except the one on the throne. That's the only one that matters on that day. Faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. What's his name? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's all that matters. And we enter into his joy. Why? Because of God's call and because of Christ's atoning death. That's what, that's what counts. And they will find themselves, these faithful ones, Sosthenes, will find themselves in the same eternal reward with the apostles. We will sit down and eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Paul and Sosthenes. Why? Because those men were faithful where they were called. If you are a Christian, you are the object of God's sovereign grace. You get to bear witness to the suffering servant of Yahweh. You've been called to bear up under trials and to remain faithful where God has called you. And we should be content with that. That's, that is an acceptable living. The book of Hebrews says that Christ was faithful in all God's house as a son. Christ was the premier faithful servant. He did what He was called to do. He was called, uh, called forth from eternity to be our mediator and to come and to live and to die for our sins and to be raised for our justification. And He did that because Christ has, did that, has, has done that, has finished that. We cannot be called to perform that work. We're not called to make atonement for our sins. And that's a, a, a blessing to us. Um, it's good to have one who was faithful for us. So as the elements are passed and you consider specifically His death and His crucifixion, uh, see, see there a model of great faithfulness and a faithfulness, faithful, faithfulness that is a blessing to us.